there's constant innovation in the government. And quite frankly, it's the largest customer in the world, um, the US federal government. So if you're selling anything to anyone and you have the opportunity to sell to the government, that's the biggest customer base that you can attract. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. Privacy is everything to us. Think about it. We prioritize keeping our information safe and secure. We set passcodes on our phones, lock down our computers, and work to guard pretty much everything else that belongs to us. If keeping our information protected is vital, imagine how important it is for the world's largest customer, the U.S. federal government. On this episode, we hear from a woman whose innovative work does just that. It keeps the government's information protected. Stella Mercado, president and CEO of Mercom, is a fierce, determined, and true-born leader who provides mission-based technology solution sets for the federal government. Mercom's innovative solutions focus on cloud computing, cybersecurity, digital integration, and so much more. A quick note, Stella and her team have even implemented solutions for Air Force One. So saying Stella is a big deal is really an understatement. Mercom centers everything it does around trust, accountability, and dedication. And it's safe to say Stella has laid the foundation for her team to succeed. As technology continues to advance, and we continue to pour more of our information into the world, cybersecurity infrastructure and defense technology are essential. I'm Stella Mercado, and I'm President and CEO of Mercom. And these are my notes on innovation. Mercom is a federal contractor supporting the government with IT solutions. So we've done a variety of things from having people on site at cleared facilities like the NSA to supporting the Navy to providing uh, solutions for federal education schools um, overseas, supporting the Department of State overseas and call it CONUS, Continental US. and. Had, you have people on site, and then you also have solutions that you integrate or end or install for the customers. When you talk about solutions, uh, are you referring to uh, cyber solutions, technology, infrastructure, IT? Mainly for us is technology and infrastructure, um, but with all the requirements for cybersecurity, that's incorporated into the solution set that we provide to the government. So the federal procurement process is um, what's called an RFI. So they they request information, right? And they that's them trying to figure out what they want. And so industry responds to that. And then they have the RFP, which is a request for the actual product or solution, the proposal, whatever. So they have a set way of putting that requirement together and then it's up to industry to respond. So if you have a good relationship with that government customer and, there's, and you're um, stepping in on part of that process, the RFI process, and you've spoken with the customer and you can recognize what they're really looking for. Um, and then as part of your RFP response, 
you know, your proposal, you've built that into your solution. For Stella, building successful client solutions is extremely important, but establishing trust is even more valuable. So if they want, they don't want a blue cup, they want a red cup, you know, but in the RFP, they put they want a cup. So you have to know that they actually really want the red cup, right? So it's, it's the relationship that you have with any customer, whether it's government or not, um, and building the right solution set for that customer. One of the solutions that we provided, this is a couple years ago, that's kind of cool, um, was on Air Force One. Um, so one of our solution set that we integrated here was um, an IT solution set that was specifically for Air Force One. Um, and we built that here and were able to deploy it. And that was kind of a, a cool customer, you know, to have that one of your solutions was on Air Force One. I'll go back to State Department. So I remember I was with the customer and we were sort of um, way before the, the requirement came out kind of coming up with ideas to um, go from a closed system to an open system. So we were drawing on napkins, you know, how to design the system so that we could then implement it. And that solution went out to embassies overseas. Some of our solutions, secure solutions, have gone on to Navy ships or airplanes. And um, there's just some really cool stuff that you get to touch, you know, within the government, the federal government space that you just don't really get to touch. So this, there's no specific widget per se that we've come up with. We've, um, it's, it's more integration of a lot of different product sets that then you integrate and provide a customer um, based on what their requirements are. Stella starting out 20 years ago, how do you go from you know, cutting your teeth at the State Department to going through the maze of government contracting? So I kind of stumbled upon um, government, government contracting. When I was in college, I wanted to actually be a foreign service officer for the State Department. And um, I applied, didn't get in, and had to figure out what I wanted to do. And actually, at the time, it was you know 1996, IT was blowing up, pre-dot bomb. So I applied to a company that was a distributor that provided fiber optics to the government and started working with Department of State and um, some DOD agencies as well. Got to know how they acquire, um, how they procure, and kind of got my feet wet, went to another company and focused completely on the Department of State. And that's really where I cut my teeth was supporting the Department of State. And that's when Stella began working toward building MERCOM. After establishing MERCOM in 2000, Stella's sights were set on serving mission-based technology solutions within defense, intelligence, healthcare, and civilian markets. So from a funding perspective, we basically bootstrapped. Um, we've never accepted outside funding. Recently, um, I bought my partner out a couple of years ago and then sold those shares back to a corporation. Um, but other than that, we've self-funded everything. And we've primarily worked within, there's a couple of banks that have specific programs to federal contractors. So we've worked within those programs, within those banks. Mercom had sources of revenue working with the government, so we didn't need to scale at all. I mean, we just focused on doing the work that we did, and the government actually has, um, they pay small businesses faster than they pay the larger businesses. There's programs for, for that as well. So typically it takes about two to three years to establish yourself um, as a government contractor. You have to establish past performance to do business with the government. So there's steps, the typical steps of starting any business. You know, you get your tax ID and some of the other requirements, but you also have to establish um, and or propose contracts. 
And the key to doing any business with the federal government is to have what we call contract vehicles. That's a streamlined method the government uses to buy goods and services. So if you have contract vehicles, then you can sell to the government. Without those vehicles, it does make it difficult to sell to the U.S. government. The easiest federal contract vehicle that's out there that any company can go after is GSA Schedule. Um, there's multiple GSA schedules, one specifically uh, for IT companies. So you sort of step one is to uh, set up your company with a GSA schedule. And it's not really competitive. You're just telling the government what you're gonna provide and you give them a discount. And then you move on to selling whatever it is that you're selling to the government. After that, then you can establish some past performance with through the GSA schedule or through other small business um, contracting opportunities. And then you start going and developing larger contract vehicles and you propose on bigger and bigger contract vehicles. Usually they have um, ceiling bases um, and that's how you, you, know, you build your contract base and, and past performance as well. The government is innovative. I don't think people recognize how innovative they actually are. People know about DARPA and NASA and some of the solutions that have come out of um, those agencies. The Navy has a lot of innovative solutions, even Department of State. And um, consumer, you know, citizen-based agencies also have some unique solutions that they require. So it is innovative. I think one of the challenges that the government has is the procurement process. I think that's somewhat archaic and um, there seems to be a lot more focus on that now. So the procurement process is starting to become a little bit more innovative. And for Stella, innovation is not only a solution, it's a skill. I define innovation as ability to manage constant change. What works last year will not work this year. Um, so you're constantly adapting to what the client's requirements are, whether it's technology or, um, in our case, a different contract vehicle. Um, some the flavor of the month for for a GSA schedule might be great for last year, but you know the next year the Navy might be using a Navy contract, and if you don't anticipate you know, those innovations and those requirements, then you're not gonna be successful. So it's just constant change. When you're selling technology, inherently you're used to change. So um, many times the minute that technology is sold, it goes out of date. So you're constantly working to innovate. And I'll give you an example. Um, the US Department of State uh, has catalogs. And every year we work with one of the manufacturers and there is a, an update to the technology, you know, whatever the specifics are for the, for the solution set, and we have to update the catalog. Um, so there's technology just in and of itself has changed. Kudos to Stella. I mean, you know, coming out of grad school and not having a, a clear vision of exactly what she might do, but, but saw this, this opportunity to start looking at the federal government or just government in general as a place to provide something and and figuring out that puzzle that is procurement. I mean, most people they hear, you know, government and don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. But, you know, she just dug right in and started leading on mentors and just starting to peel back the layers of how to work with the government. And, and I really wish more people would look at it as an opportunity. I mean, I might be biased. I'm a state employee. Um, but but you know, there, there. If there's one place that I feel like we can all say needs and will always need innovation, the government and how we support society at large. And you know, 
that if, if you can figure out that puzzle, you know, you have a steady stream of customer base there uh, and a working relationship because government, I'll tell you right now, we can't do everything. Uh, you know, we need outside perspective. And so who better to lean on than commerce, you know, actual commerce like Estella to be providing those solutions directly. Yeah. And, you know, she talked about the government being the largest customer. Um, you know, and I, I went back and looked at some of the data on that just to understand that. And what's interesting in 2019 is if you look at real GDP for you, the U.S., government spending is basically at the same level as all of business investment at roughly 18, 19 percent of GDP. So she's right. It, it, you've got in one customer and, and the federal government, I believe, in, as far as GDP is concerned, state and local government is also in that figure. You've got in all of government a customer that is equivalent to all of the business investment uh, in GDP. And so for Stella to talk about, identify that as an opportunity and for her to break down barriers in order to uh, address that opportunity is, is super compelling. I mean, if you, if you can get to the largest customer out there, why wouldn't you? And the idea that, that the government is not a sexy customer is also fascinating to me because many of the inventions that we take for granted are all, we're all government funded, right? Yeah, yeah. Our phones, the internet, vaccines. Um, I mean, heck, we're going through that right now. We're the, the majority of the investment that potentially will bring a, a COVID-19 vaccine to market. It's coming from the government. Will come from the government. And so, you know, I think Stella is right on the money and ahead of her time with respect to addressing these opportunities. honored to have our podcast of note recognized with a 2020 webby honoree award for our debut season the webby awards is the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet awarded by the international academy of digital arts and sciences it's the internet's highest honor you can help us continue to grow the podcast by subscribing reviewing and sharing with your friends and colleagues So I had uh, a lot of mentors throughout the years. I was really fortunate. I listened a lot to people that had been successful, other small businesses. Um, we also worked with large businesses. Um, the government actually has a program called the Mentor Protege Program. And so large businesses like Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Booz Allen will mentor smaller companies. And we happened to be a protege for General Dynamics a few years ago. And they helped us um, build processes that typically small businesses don't have the funding for or the talent to be able to set those up. And those, when you complete those processes, then you become more efficient in doing proposals for the government. How can you get into a, a mentor protege program? It's relationships. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of networking in the federal government. So you work with most of the larger organizations uh, have like Booz and, and General Dynamics have small business offices. So you reach out to their small business offices and you have to have something unique that they need. So right now, cybersecurity is hot. So if you have cybersecurity talent or some sort of cloud expertise, um, they'll want to probably bring you on into a protege um, environment or protege agreement. And that helps them win contracts as well. Many small businesses don't have the facilities to be able to scale. Um, and we recognize a lot of those things early on because I had worked for larger business. So um, we had built a lot of the requirements up front and were able to perform for those customers prior to entering into the minor protege agreement. 
You mentioned cybersecurity is hot. Can you just talk a little bit about why? Everything cybersecurity is hot. Um, everyone's been hacked, but the government gets actually hacked more often than um, private sector does. The Pentagon gets targeted a lot, CIA, um, any intelligence agency does often. So they constantly have cybersecurity in front and center. Um, there have been significant hacks like the OPM hack a few years ago, which basically was any government employee and or contractor's employment information was hacked. In 2015, the Office of Personnel Management was the target of a data breach that impacted an estimated 22.1 million people and left the U.S. government shocked. Recently, the government is putting out a cybersecurity maturation model and all contractors are going to have to, in the future, are going to have to um, basically have that certification built into their solution set to even be able to bid to the government for any solutions that they have. Um, so it's always been front and center. I mean, there's cybersecurity is imp critically important. From an analogy standpoint is cybersecurity is like the blanket that goes around everything with technology. So it doesn't matter if you're in cloud or if you're in network infrastructure or basic you know, IT support, you're gonna have cyber wrapped around it, whether the people that you have are trained in cyber. So if you, just as one example, Security Plus is a requirement to do any DOD work um, as a contractor. So anybody that's on site that's doing anything with IT has to have Security Plus and some of the other certifications to do that work. So the best way that I can describe it is that cyber is a blanket that goes around anything with IT. So I feel like you, know, you pull out your phone and there's a headline almost every day around somebody new, big brand names getting hacked, your data not being protected, or even here, you know, Garmin. You know, nobody is safe from uh, these kinds of hacks and, and, and attacks from a cybersecurity standpoint. And, and so much so, you know, this is a field that's not going anywhere. You know, Stella describes it as the blanket that's around everything. And so there's a huge workforce demand for, for individuals that have that kind of domain expertise. And, you know, she, she references the Security Plus or uh, more formally known as the CompTIA Security Plus. It's vendor neutral, meaning, you know, big names like Microsoft and Google a lot of times will make their own certification kind of programs, but that's to go work with them. You know, CompTIA is Security Plus. You can go find jobs really virtually anywhere. Uh, it is internationally accepted. Um, it's approved by the Department of Defense Directive 8570.1, which again, that is has directly to do with cybersecurity kind of clearances. Um, and it is a top cybersecurity certificate in high demand. So for those of you that are sitting at home and, and kind of thinking about different career opportunities, I would say this is one to, to go and look at that is readily available at your fingertips and one that is required to begin any kind of entry-level job uh, in cybersecurity. IT security jobs are projected to jump 28% from 2016 to 2026, according to the U.S. Bureau of, of Labor Statistics. Um, and just as another little footnote, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, teeter-tottering whether or not to go through this credentialing process, the certificate lasts three years. So once you've got it, you've got time to figure out what you might want to do. Cybersecurity is hot right now, but we wanted to know where Stella wanted to take Mercom next. We all live in cloud, right? With from any applications, Facebook, whatever, we're all in cloud. 
um, Instagram, millennials grow up on cloud, everything's, it's cloud native. The government is not cloud native. Um, most of their systems um, were built years ago before cloud was even out there. So there's weapon systems. I mean, anything you can think of um, are being run off of archaic technology. Code has to be rewritten. There's a ton of opportunity within cloud. And then how do you secure a cloud and how does the government make sure that a closed system can't be put on the cloud? You know, it has to be a closed system. So there's there's some um, risk mitigation that you're constantly doing as a, as a either a policymaker and or as a user or a program manager and an implementer. So the minute that you do anything on the cloud, online, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, you're putting all of your data out there, whether it's real or not, it's that's up to you. So we as individuals have that decision, but there is a responsibility of the government that also has our information and um, government program information that they have to make different decisions. It's, it's policy-based de decisions. Who makes those choices? Do we have people at Microsoft or Amazon in conjunction with the government making these decisions for society at large? Or? Industry is definitely working with government. That's one of the great things I think that does make the government innovative is um, they, the military actually has people at Stanford and now are embedding um, military in with some of these companies so that they can see firsthand and develop firsthand just like the companies do on the commercial side. Um, with regards to the cloud contract specifically, um, you know, there's really two lead companies. It's Microsoft and Amazon. It's AWS. AWS, or Amazon Web Services, is an on-demand cloud computing platform with a focus on security and scalability. Security in the cloud is in different levels. So there's data centers all around the world, but um, for both companies, um, but for any government contracts, they're typically in U.S. locations, and there are U.S. citizens that are inside of those data centers. What have you learned over the years being CEO, president? You know, what, what have been some of the top learnings? Believe in the people that are doing the right things. You know, I've always been focused on the people, um, sometimes maybe even to my detriment. When you recognize that someone's not right, move on. You know, that's an important part of it. If they're, if they're not a good team fit, um, then they need to move to another company where they are a good fit. When you're a small business and you're just starting out, hiring your first employee if it's outside of family is probably the hardest thing to do because you're responsible for their well-being. Um, it's no longer just about you. So making sure that you can fund that first employee is, is, is critical. And it's a risk. It's a risk to the employee because you're so small um, at the time. So we, we were actually very fortunate. We had a good group of a uh, couple of first employees that were really great and stayed with us for a long time. What are the challenges of being an entrepreneur and how do you stay on top of your game and focused? It is challenging, you know, staying gung-ho the entire time. Um, it's just kind of like the work-life balance thing. You have seasons. And there are times when you are wanting to go after a specific contract and you are willing to put everything into it. And then there's other times where you just kind of need a break and you need a vacation. Um, because usually as an entrepreneur, you are 100% on all the time. There's no downtime.
If your two boys grow up and decide they want to become entrepreneurs, what would you, what would be the first piece of advice you'd tell them? They would need to have a business degree. So that's something that I did not do. I was a political science major, um, but I would 100% have them focus on a business degree or business two-year certificate or something. Accounting, economics, just some basic um, understanding the financial aspect of a business. I think a lot of owners and founders don't have that background. You can hire it, but you really as an owner have to understand the, the fundamentals of the financial side. And as for the future generation of workers, Stella highlights the importance of optimizing workforce development. Workforce development is a huge problem that quite frankly was discussed 30 years ago. Department of Labor knew that people were gonna retiring and they knew that there was gonna be some problems with workforce development. Um, I think that state leadership and or federal government leadership and they're starting to pivot on this. Um, understanding that technology starts like for my children when they were babies, right? Recognizing that a typical four-year degree graduate isn't necessarily what you need to get the job done anymore. Um, apprenticeship programs, um, there's, there's just a ton of a programs. And also, why can't we hire someone who's 14 or 12 that is an expert at flying drones? You know, I mean, I know there's child labor laws, but you know, there's, my point is that the technology has changed so much and younger people are utilizing that technology and they're becoming the experts um, at those technologies. It is more accessible and it's, and it's natural to them. It's very natural to them. Um, so not having these barriers that are there so that someone can fit in a box to be hired, that needs to change. Um, and it's starting to. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. The Navy down in Charleston recently added internships, interns and um, apprentices, we're working on the language, into their labor category requirements. So now as a company, I can actually go out and hire someone that's a student and actually get paid for the work that they do before I had to pay for them um, out of my own pocket. So that's a really easy, great example of now I can do a proposal and incorporate an apprentice or an intern into that solution set. Um, and they're doing, they're doing unique work. So I think the governments really need to pivot in two areas, workforce development definitely and, and acquisition. Those are the two areas that really need to change. So Stella's, uh, you know, she's really gone into some detail and, and challenging the, the government to be participating more with workforce development. I couldn't agree more, but I'd also say, you know, industry needs to be right there behind it. You know, they're the ones that are hiring people, right? So when they come to the two-year schools or the four-year schools or, or whoever, the, the, the K through 12 saying that we need people, well, fine, that's great. But tell us what the, the what those those skill sets are and, and directly help in building programs and pathways that create that pipeline of talent that they need. And, and you know, we've got things in the state like Apprenticeship Carolina that are, are sitting there ready, you know, for that, take that phone call from, from industry to start, you know, problem solving with them and having that deep complex conversation around uh, a, a true talent pipeline. And, you know, I'll, I'll take this chance to sort of, you know, we've, we've started even in, an, in my office at Commerce, something called SC Codes, where, Somebody that's just wanting to explore the idea of having a career in technology can start teaching themselves basic coding skills right then and there for free. 
So again, and even with that program, as we continue to build that out, you know, our, our partners with Build Carolina are having conversations with industry in the states that we are building training modules that are relevant for their needs right now and today and for the future. So, you know, I would say this is just my little soapbox here, obviously, you know, industry have that conversation, um, you know, it seems to be a common theme with a lot of our interviews. We talk about the the public-private partnership and, and why is that so important? It's really about that workforce at the end of the day, that the industry is participating on these research projects so that the undergrads and graduate students are seeing real-life problems that industry are having. And so when these kids graduate, that sure, they've, they maybe they've got that student debt, but they have something on their resume that's real. And and a lot of times those kids will get plucked out of these these projects that they've worked on in the in the collegiate setting and get hired and picked up by the industry so so anyways industry come to us we want to help solve the talent problem with you it's just it takes you with us i'm stella mercado and those were my notes on innovation this has been of note a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures i'm joseph nother and i'm laura quarter this is an original production by the south carolina office of innovation and design sensory Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Mariah Reed. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matthew Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at scribblesc. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Of Note. The first version of Abby was me sketching sort of what I thought it would look like. It looked a little bit like the Michelin Man on paper. I was at Yale and I'd gone to the Center for Engineering and Innovative Design where teachers and um, faculty members and students can go to design their own uh, ideas free of charge. I came in contact with this amazingly talented undergrad who basically helped convert that first you know, pencil and paper design into a 3D printable design. Um, it was a very rudimentary first prototype, you know, it was a little, it was a little awkward looking and it was, um, and the software was very minimal. We started with what we could afford, the, the off-the-shelf parts and the inexpensive components that would serve to at least give us a, an idea of how it would work. And so that was the birth of the first Abby.